Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Welcome back to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast. My name is Jackie Lewis. I'm your host. And I'm the clinical nutritionist for Being Healthy. Today on the show, I'm joined by the surfing scientist, Ruben Meerman. Ruben is a scientist and educator, author and public speaker. And his mission is to educate our young minds on just how we can look after our health by having a better understanding of the ins and outs of fat burning. Ruben has a number of TEDx talks I recommend you watch so you can see a demonstration and gain a great insight into what actually happens to fat when it's burnt and why we need to know about it. In this episode, you'll learn more about how breathing and fat loss are interconnected and why it's good information to have if you're planning on living a long and healthy life. I will prepare you. Ruben and I do geek out a little bit throughout the episode, but I think you'll walk away with some truly valuable concepts that will help you no end. Welcome, Ruben Meerman. Thanks for joining me. I think we've got a fascinating episode ahead of lots of biochemistry and numbers, firstly, but also a real insight into how our bodies work, how we metabolize fat, what happens, and how do we get more of it in our lives. So thanks for your time. I'm so grateful to have you here. Thanks for having me. And so, firstly, how did you become interested in biochemistry and fat metabolism of all things and weight loss? (laughs) So I studied physics at uni and did not cover that at all in any of my schooling, really, or my university education. So I became interested when I started losing a bit of weight myself because when I was 42, I was about five kilos overweight, which is not a lot, but it certainly was more than I wanted to be. So when I started losing weight, I suddenly stumbled across this question what happens to the weight that you lose? I literally just had no idea what was going on when I stood on the scales and I'd lost about seven kilograms. And because I teach kids a lot, so I've got a really interesting picture of what seven kilograms, how much that is, because I'm constantly telling kids, a kilogram is a litre of water is a kilogram. So if you lose seven kilograms, that's the equivalent of seven litres of water. And actually, fat is a little bit less dense than water, so it's more than seven litres of fat, which is a lot of stuff. Like, it's nearly a bucket worth of physical matter. And I had no idea how that stuff had come out of my body. Like, it wasn't in me anymore. So that was my first time that I ever was interested in biochemistry and down the rabbit hole I've been ever since. (laughs) I watched your video on the people that you interviewed on Bondi Beach asking them the same question like where does fat go when you lose weight where does the fat go and it's it is fascinating how we don't necessarily think too much about it to begin with and secondly we just take for granted that we're ticking the box off and we're pretty happy that it's not there if we didn't want it that was an incredible survey of the standard australian of where does fat go yeah what kind of answer did they give you it was we poo it out we yeah. comes out in our sweat like the more you sweat the more fat you lose there's a lot of myth so it's really nice to dispel a lot of those what was mm. the most surprising answer someone gave you on the street for where fat goes uh well to me the most surprising one was that most people think it turns into energy or heat that's the number one answer that you get and you get it also from i then after i filmed those vox pops down at bondi about six months later, I did a survey of doctors, dietitians, and personal trainers, out 50 of each, and they came up with all the same answers. And the most mm. common one was when you lose weight, it turns into nothing, energy, heat, it's just gone. And the reason that surprises me is because I've got a physics degree. And one, the one thing I was certain of when I first stumbled onto this question is that it can't turn into heat because it's made of atoms and you can't turn an atom into just heat unless you happen to have an antimatter atom to annihilate that atom with, which is a real thing. Like that mm-hmm. actually can be done, but it's certainly not what's going on inside our bodies. So the fact that health professionals, people who have studied biochemistry have that misconception is really interesting to university educators and even high school teachers because 
you can't turn fat into heat. And so we're doing something wrong with the way we're teaching this, even at the university level. One of the funniest answers I got to that question, and I get this all the time, was one woman who was down at Bondi Beach with her mum. When I asked them both the question, the daughter, she was in her 40s, okay, and, and mum would have been in her 60s. And the daughter said, ah, oh, when she loses it, it comes over to me. And uh, I've had, <laughs> I get that a fair bit. Like when people lose it, it comes to me is what some people feel like they've just got this curse. It's <laughs> sneaky like that when someone's being vigilant. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. But I guess we should probably actually say what the real actual answer is. Like, yes, where I does was just about go? to say, so where does it go? <laughs> yeah. And this blew my mind. When you burn a fat molecule, you are converting it to carbon dioxide and water, and that's it. That's the only two waste products you get. And it releases heat in the process, so there is heat generated. And here's where I got really nerdy. So this is why I managed to get this published in the British Medical Journal. And it's not new, so it's not like I had discovered something new. My favourite thing to say to kids when I'm teaching them about this is that when Captain Cook sailed past Brisbane or wherever I happened to be. Scientists did not know what happens to fat when you burn it. They didn't know what happens to wood when mm. you burn it in a fire. We didn't know what fire was. So that was 1770. But by the time the first fleet arrived in Sydney Cove, we did know that when you burn organic matter, whether it's fat in your fat cells or a piece of wood or a piece of paper, a candle, it always just turns into carbon dioxide and water and that's it. But when I learnt that little fact, I'd just lost some weight. So I was then thinking I had another 10 kilos I wanted to lose. And I wanted to know if I'm breathing out some of that fat as carbon dioxide, how much out of the 10 kilograms that I still want to lose, how much of that will I exhale and how much of it will become water? And that had not been published, even yeah. though we could do the maths. I figured out from other people's works, there's some simple equations to use. And it turns out that when you lose 10 kilograms of fat, 8.4 of those kilograms become CO2. So the That's vast majority yeah, is breathed out, actually, exhale. It's happening right under your nose yeah. all the that time. Literally. As you, literally, yeah. Unfortunate thing is you can't see it. So, mm. however, I had seen it because I do this demonstration for kids in schools all the time with liquid nitrogen. If you inflate a balloon with your exhaled breath, tie it up, pour liquid nitrogen on it. If you use a transparent balloon, you can see that the carbon dioxide in your breath becomes dry It's actual matter, yeah. And I will share those links to these amazing videos because you actually put it together in such a spectacular and easy to understand way. I mean, we'll cross it in the podcast, but I'll link these talks you've done that actually play out with chemistry, what's going on in the body and actually give it a visual. It's fascinating. So stay tuned yeah, for those. It's, it's strikingly visual. So it's kids, well, everyone laps it up as you can imagine. Mm, it's so, brilliant. Thank and you. so none of this is new and now it's in the British Medical Journal. How did that come about for you? How do you go about publishing a new article like that? I got so weirdly lucky. So the first thing that happened after I figured out that maths is I was still doing a bit of media work at the time and I was invited to MC the inaugural TEDx that QUT, my alma mater, put on. So as part of being the MC, you get offered a slot to give a TEDx talk. And I said, oh, cool. How about I present this maths? I've just literally only just done it. And so I did that and it went down really well. Everyone was really interested. I was also working on a show called Catalyst at oh, the time yeah. on ABC TV. It took me six months to convince my producers that what I had figured out had not been published anywhere before. They were like, oh, come on, Ruben, surely you're pulling our legs here. Fair enough, too. It seems ridiculous that no one had published that before or done anything about it. So, so finally whinged and I was like a dog with a bone and they finally let me do a story about it, which is also online. So you can watch that still on YouTube. And in that story, I met Professor Andrew Brown, who is a biochemist at the University of New South Wales. And he teaches fat metabolism to second and third year biochem students and medical students. And I, the reason I invited him onto the episode was to give the credibility that I needed because who the heck am I saying all this stuff? So he did, interviewed him. I'm still great friends with him because the day after we filmed it, 
I got an email from him saying, hey, what you've done is really interesting and I think it would be fun to get it published and I'll help you do that. So that's how, by having his name attached to it, I got the credibility that British Medical Journal needs. Otherwise, you know, I don't know what they would have said. So, yeah, yeah, yeah it was good. And now you're taking it to the school level. You were talking earlier before about your work in Bundaberg mm. and bringing this into, I guess, educating kids to begin with, which is fantastic. We then go home and hopefully tell their parents about it and they get do. us all thinking because yep. we were saying earlier, unless you choose to specialise in learning how your body works and how to feed it and that sort of thing, school hasn't been necessarily the place to learn all of this stuff. And then we get to our 30s and 40s and we really don't know how to manage it. So what, yep. what are you doing in that area? So this is really fun because the concepts, if you look carefully at the science curriculum and the health and phys ed curriculum, You could argue that it is in there. Mm. However, kids don't learn about atoms in the curriculum until grade nine, and they don't learn the periodic table of the chemical elements until grade 10. And by then, they're teenagers, and it's very hard to learn a new language after you get beyond about 12 years old. It gets Mm. harder and harder. So it's too late. That's why most kids hate learning chemistry, because they first are introduced to it at way too late in the game. So that's a good point. It's so late in the game because of the work of Jean Piaget, who was a psychologist who did great work and I'm not bagging him, but he thought that kids are not able to understand or grasp abstract concepts, such as the concept that they need to grasp is that big things can be made out of many, many, many small things that are too small to see individually, but they make up, for instance, a glass of water is made of trillions of water molecules, but you can't see a single water molecule. And that's the issue that, according to Piaget's stages of cognitive development. Isn't that uh, interesting? Yeah, it's fascinating. Because to me, that changes how you look at the world. Like when you know what makes up matter, different types of matter, and you understand that how things interact and the opposites attract and all the different ways things work to make different even plastic or metal or whatever it is, like what is at work to form these things that we see every day, it actually gives you a very different way of looking at the world because cooking is chemistry. So you know what I mean? Like it blows me away that they don't introduce it earlier because the world is a full chemical melting pot. And we are. So once we understand what's going on outside of us, why does oil sit on the top of water for example I don't know why that would be so hard for a kid under year 9 to understand like it just changes everything you do now you know how to clean oil because you know what a solvent is and you know how to add it in and break up the bonds so it's just totally a new way of looking at the world and we wait until they're teenagers and they don't want to hear about it from us (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's crazy isn't it like it seems it's no one's fault because Piaget did great work and it's just now slow to change too isn't it if you want to get in and do anything different it's a very slow process yeah well it is at the departmental level like you know because those people need evidence to before they're going to make a big change so fair enough you can't expect a bureaucrat to just so we're in this really weird little stitch in history here where it's not just me there's a lot Mm -hmm. of people who think kids should be learning about atoms much sooner and one of them is a retired chemistry teacher called Ian Stewart, who lives in oh. Brisbane, who is the whole reason I think this is possible because he's invented some little model atoms that stick together with magnets that you can give to grade one teachers so they can Boy. physically model these little molecules. They can show one oxygen atom with two hydrogen stuck to it is H2O and one carbon atom with two oxygens is CO2. So we can actually start to do physical models and then convert that over to little chemical formulas. So what I'm doing in Bundaberg is I've run around to all of the schools and spoken to the principals and then they all love the idea of teaching kids this stuff. And all primary school teachers, when you talk to them about this, they all agree that their students would be able to understand that things are made of atoms. They're all on board. So the next thing I did was a science show for the kids where I did the trick and froze a balloon full of exhaled air. And we talked about how carbon gets into exhaled carbon dioxide. And the kids just can't get enough of this stuff. Mm. It's fun though too, isn't it? If you get to mix things up and they bubble and explode and things are steamy, like it's really attractive for young kids. And I think that way they grasp it. Yeah, you've really onto something. 
Yeah, they absolutely cannot get enough. And you said it really well just before, you know, it's like once you know that everything's made out of like there's 92 kinds of atoms on the planet mm. and everything's just a mixture of those. Once you know that, it's like letting kids in on the biggest secret that the universe has withheld from us because you can't see atoms because they're too tiny. But yeah. once you're aware of that fact, suddenly the word carbohydrate, and this absolutely floors most adults when I explain to them using my sticky atom little models that all green plants do the same trick when they're photosynthesizing. They pull water out of the ground, which has fallen as rain, but then they hold it up to sunlight in their chlorophyll molecules, which are in the leaves, and they hold up a water molecule so that it gets zapped by a ray of sunlight, which breaks the bonds that mm. hold the hydrogen atoms to the oxygen atoms. And I've got these little models that I'm holding in my hand when I do this. If you do that trick twice, then you'll end up with four hydrogen atoms completely plucked off their water molecules and two oxygen atoms that have had their hydrogens removed. If you stick those two oxygens together, that becomes O2 gas, oxygen, mm. which then comes out of the leaf. And so the first amazing fact that you can teach kids is that every oxygen molecule that you're inhaling, which is keeping you alive, each one of those was once two water molecules that had their hydrogens ripped off. And the plant then does that constantly all day while the sun is shining, but it takes those hydrogens and sticks them to carbon dioxide, which it plucks out of the air. And when you're sticking hydrogen to carbon dioxide, you are hydrating the carbon dioxide. So you are making a carbo Hydrate. And, and that's, that's it. The, that's the origin of the word. Carbohydrates. Absolutely. And you can see almost a physical light bulb appear above people's heads when you say mm. those words. And then from there, I mean, plants make carbohydrates all day long. They stick six of those little new carbohydrate molecules together to make a big one called glucose, which has six carbon atoms. And if you stick six together in just exactly the same number of atoms, but a slightly different arrangement, you get fructose, which is the second half of sucrose, which is the sugar we chuck into tea and yeah. biscuits and everything else. Well, when you stick those two together, fructose and glucose together, that's sucrose. And all green plants make sucrose. They put it into the sap that goes down to their roots. And that's how they transport carbon atoms from their leaf down to the roots and to their trunk and get bigger. And when you do the mathematics on a plant, how much it weighs and how much of that weight comes from carbon dioxide versus how much comes from water, nearly all of the weight comes from mm -hmm. carbon dioxide. The water molecule only provides the hydrogen atoms and they're the yeah. lightest atoms in the universe. So you look at a tree or I was telling the guy who mows my parents' lawn the other day, he's Frank is his name. <laughs> I love him. He's a really fit gardener who... I said to him, mate, do you realise that all the weight in your catcher there that you're lugging around and chucking over here, nearly all of that was carbon dioxide. And it blew his mind. I ran him through this chemistry. But then we eat that stuff and then we mm. turn it back into carbon dioxide and water. It's the circle of life. Absolutely. And so if I want to lose more fat and it's converted to breath, do I just breathe more? That's frequently Is asked that question the number one. Just sit around, <laughs> breathe. We're all, yeah. you know... It's part of the new wave of meditate and breathe. And we know breathing is good for us, but am I losing fat while I'm sitting here breathing? Well, yes, you are while you're breathing. Constantly, every single breath that we exhale has carbon dioxide in it. So a really nice thought to meditate on if you are thinking a lot about the fact that you might want to lose weight. Some people say you shouldn't be obsessing over that. But if you are going to think about it, then think about this. Every time you inhale and then exhale, the air you breathe out weighs more than the air you just breathed in because now it has more carbon in it. So inhaled fresh air is about 0.04% carbon dioxide. Another way to say that is 400 out of every million molecules in air, uh, 400 parts per million CO2. When you breathe out, it's 40,000 parts per million, at least more like 50 to 60,000 parts per million. So in other words, a hundred times more carbon atoms come out of you than go into you with each breath. And, and it's so quick, like the gaseous exchange between lung tissue and out of the blood. So blue blood coming back to get oxygenated is carbon dioxide rich, right? So mm -hmm. that's why yep. veins are blue and arteries are red because arteries have more oxygen. 
and yes. veins have more, have less oxygen, basically. Correct. But to yeah. me, it's incredible how we take in oxygen and then a seconds later we're breathing out carbon dioxide because the body's working on it all the time. It is so, so interesting. We're so incredible. The way we work as far as a chemical machine is quite remarkable. Yeah. Um, and one way that I like to pitch this to primary school teachers if when I'm first suggesting to them that, hey, we need to teach these children about atoms and molecules so we can mm. get into this really good stuff. But you've got to start at the beginning. I then compare how we teach children how to read and write, which is what teachers are experts at teaching kids how to do that. And when you look at the sequence that you would start with, like, where do you begin with teaching how to read and write? And the answer is you begin with the alphabet. And once you know the alphabet, and the letters of it, then you can join letters together to make words. Mm. And once you can make words, you can make sentences and then you can make stories and poems and songs. With chemistry and what we're talking about here, the first thing you need to know is everything's made of atoms and they form the alphabet of what everything's made of. And then molecules are like chemical words. And then if you stick words together, well, chemical words, you're talking about chemical reactions like Mm. CO2 plus H2O makes glucose. And then once you know that, For me, I then think, well, that makes life and biochemistry the best story that's ever been told in the language of atoms, because it really is. It just gets better and better. And understanding what happens at the interface between your bloodstream and the air in your alveoli, it's exquisite because hemoglobin dumping its carbon dioxide and hemoglobin becomes better at binding oxygen when it releases CO2. There's a thing called the Haldane effect and the Bohr effect. It is the most remarkable little molecule, the hemoglobin molecule, and, and it's made of atoms. And that's an interesting point because a, a huge proportion of our weight loss surgery patient audience are low in hemoglobin because iron levels are a really big issue after the surgery. Ah. So I'm putting it together with what you're saying here is here is the connection between perhaps iron deficiency, a lack of hemoglobin, a lack of oxygen, and a slowing in your weight loss because obviously you can't convert because you're not taking in that oxygen and doing much with it. So when the blood is devoid of enough iron to be a good transporter of oxygen, you're lowering your chances of this whole fatty acid oxidization process. Well, yeah. Yeah, would that be correct? So I'm not an expert, I'm not a medical person. So definitely if your hemoglobin is low, then Mm. I would expect you to feel uh, like you're lacking energy because you can't get enough oxygen to your mitochondria, which is where food gets turned into carbon dioxide and water. So yeah, it would make physical activity more difficult because you just can't get enough oxygen to your fire to Mm. get you moving. So, but a good thing to know about that, which I find a very empowering fact is that if you haven't been doing much physical activity for years and years, then the best way to get back into becoming physically active again, and the only thing that I would ever recommend, because again, I'm not an expert and I'm not a physiotherapist, etc., but going for a walk is incredible. And if you go walking for just a week, in that one week of going for a walk every day, you will increase the number of and the size of the mitochondria in your muscles. Yeah. And I haven't looked this up, but I'm sure that you will also increase the amount of red blood cells or the amount of hemoglobin available. Mm. So your yeah. fitness will very rapidly increase with every time you do go for Absolutely. A walk, That's the fitness adaptation. So our yeah. bodies, as we stress them and stretch them and overload them, they go, oh, if you're going to keep on doing this and I'm not going to get injured, I need to adapt. So gaseous exchange is improved transport of oxygen is improved naturally and the number of mitochondria increases by up to i think i read somewhere up to 200 more per cell so you've just got this fire burning that if you're not exercising and you've got less mitochondria which is where it all happens in the cell right yeah you're just not as metabolically active which is what we talk about all the time in our realm is how can I be more metabolically active? Like how can I boost that fire or have those coals burning after the fire's gone, still burning something that's productive as well. And a lot of it we talk about is muscle. So you have more mitochondria, you have greater energy, you have more oxygen exchange as well. It's, um, you can see how it all comes together. Yeah, it's a beautiful machine. And 
Back to your question about can I just sit here and breathe more to increase the rate at which I lose weight? That really is the most frequently asked question that I get. And I sometimes get it in a slight variations on the same theme, which so for instance, people who do yoga will often say to me, oh, is that why yoga is such a good form of exercise? And it is a good form of exercise. However, for increasing the rate at which you are burning through your fat reserves, what you need to do, if you just sit there and breathe more than you need to, then all you're doing is called hyperventilating. And so your body won't be producing very much more carbon dioxide than before you started hyperventilating, but you're breathing off more than you need to. And that has big consequences because your blood needs a certain amount of carbon dioxide for the chemistry to work as it should. And that's because when you mix carbon dioxide into water, they react with each other and Mm. form an acid, which we all actually have tasted. It's called carbonic acid, and you can taste it when you drink carbonated water. And when you skull carbonated water and all the bubbles pop inside your mouth, Pure carbon dioxide fills up your sinuses and it makes your eyes water because that carbonic acid that forms is an Mm. irritant and it irritates your mucous membranes a little bit and it stings. And it's a nice feeling. It's why kids love drinking soft drink. But if you go a bit too much, it hurts. Yeah. So the same thing happens in your bloodstream, but your red blood cells have an enzyme which, as the carbon dioxide comes gushing out of your cells, let's say in your calf muscle, Carbon dioxide molecules can just go straight through a membrane, which the membranes of our cells are made of fat, so it just diffuses through that beautifully. And then it's in your bloodstream, and it goes inside your red blood cells where there's an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase, which causes it to react with water faster than it normally would, and it all gets turned into bicarbonate, which the same stuff that you use to Mm. make biscuits, sodium bicarbonate, that bicarbonate, is soluble and that's how most of the carbon dioxide in your blood is then transported all the way to your lungs. So if you then exhale more than you need to, you sit there hyperventilating, you'll puff it out into the atmosphere, but the amount of bicarbonate in your blood goes down, your pH goes up. Yeah. yeah, So it's like buffer and acid, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And people start to tremble, they get tingly fingers and you can pass out if you keep doing it. So the answer is, No, you can't just sit and breathe more to lose weight. However, (laughs) when you exercise or when you go for a walk, even just walking, just going for not a crazy power walk, just to go for a nice, fairly decent pace, but not, you know, something that you can't handle kind of a walk, you'll be breathing about four times more air per minute than you do when you're sitting still. And now you're not hyperventilating because you're producing extra CO2, you're burning more fat, in your fat cells and you're turning it into CO2 and you puff it out and you lose it four times faster. The the flip side of that then that I really want everyone to understand is that in an hour of walking, you do breathe out more CO2 than you would have if you'd sat still. But for me, I weigh 70 kilograms. If I go for a walk, the extra CO2 that I breathe out from that one hour of walking is roughly about how much carbon there is that I will put back if I drink one 600 ml bottle of soft drink. Yes. Or if I eat a slice of banana cake. So knowing how many carbon atoms you're putting in as well as how many you're breathing out is the key. Like it's not Mm. just one or the other. You really need to know know the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw that in your clip when you were doing the presentation, how you held the liquid of the soft drink and said here's what you're putting in and then here's the 17 teaspoons of sugar in a solid form you might as well just guzzle those down and those visuals i think even for adults they'd be going oh that's a deterrent like until you see those kind of things positioned in that way you pick up your soft drink and don't really give it too much of a thought because it's liquefied and it goes in quite easily but if you were to sit there and spoon in 17 teaspoons of like sugar in its granulated form i don't know how many people would be committed to that (laughs) yeah I can actually remember trying to do that as a kid when I was in uh, primary school. I grew up in the Netherlands and we stole a whole bunch of sugar cubes from the teacher sort of staff room where they make tea and coffee. I think I was seven or eight years old. And after you eat two sugar cubes, they're not very 
um, not nice to eat no. because they haven't got any acid with them and something to mix it to make it yeah. like a lolly. So, yeah, it's eating 17 teaspoons of sugar is not, no go, but you don't blink an eyelid. And the other way I like to put that is when I'm spooning out 17 teaspoons of sugar, which is precisely what's in my favourite soft drink. I drink... <laughs> Solo is my favourite soft drink, and I'm not knocking it, but I'm saying to kids, don't have this every day on yeah. top of your three meals. Like, this is a treat. Yeah. Or if I'm surfing all day and I'm paddling my butt off, then perhaps I can chuck that in without consequences. Yeah. But when I'm sitting behind my computer all day, I can't have that as well as three meals. Everything else, no. And I think that's what's great understanding is when you can quantify what is in each thing that you're eating and what it does in the body, you've got a better understanding of kind of calculating it all as well. I think that's important too. It's, we call it snacking amnesia. It's like if you don't know and you can't remember, it's, you know, no calories and no sugar. But it's like really taking stock of what is in each food and the proportions of each macronutrient and that sort of thing. And I think that's where it's at is like taking stock of everything that goes in and understanding it, but more from a chemical perspective of like it's similar. People say, well, if that's got 17 teaspoons of sugar and say that's 30 50 grams of carbs as an example why can't i have what's the difference when i'm eating 50 grams of broccoli carbohydrate it's the chemical reaction that takes place after and depending on what that sugar is so you can have your carbohydrates in your plant foods and they don't set off that chemical cascade with insulin and lipase and all those other right. things that just send you down the path of fat not being able to burn fat and the converse is when you're eating the carbs from your fruit and veggies and that sort of thing, they're actually, the body knows what to do with them firstly, but they're not spiking off um, blood glucose every time you sit down to a meal. So the consequence of those two 50 grams of carbs, which look the same and are called the same thing, actually do very different things in the body as well. Yeah, that gets really interesting. So in the TEDx Bundaberg talk that I did, I was still using a pretty lo-fi way of animating the molecules that I want people to understand. But now I need to do another TEDx talk soon because I've been doing 3D animations of how the glucose molecules in carbohydrates are stuck together. Mm -hmm. And so when you're eating starch, so it can be in bread, pasta, starch molecules are just big, long chains of glucose molecules stuck together. And saying that's one thing, but seeing them in 3D coming together is really helpful because it suddenly brings these things to life and suddenly it's a three-dimensional object in space and time that when you eat it, it's a thing and you got to do stuff with that thing and what your body does is first of all snip all the bonds that hold all those glucose molecules together but that takes time and so if you spoon in some icing sugar or even better just glucose mm -hmm. from the chemist that goes straight in your bloodstream and bang up goes your blood yeah. glucose level whereas if you eat an apple or a vegetable that's got starch in it if you eat a sweet potato or some brown rice, it takes time to clip all those little bonds. So that's so logical once you just know what's going on. But I did a demonstration for the councillors in uh, Bundaberg Regional Council with my new 3D animations. They were the first audience that I showed those to. And one of the councillors, I don't think he'd mind me sharing this, has diabetes and said to me after the talk that he had learnt more in 10 minutes than he had ever learned in the time since his diagnosis because these are hard things to explain to people without visuals. So, yeah. Yeah, so I totally agree with that. It's yeah. like, and as professionals, we have to be careful when we're dealing with people who don't have the insight into the chemistry that we learn. We do biochemistry, we do nutritional biochemistry, we do, I think I did three types of biochemistry in my degree. And you have to be careful that you just have no assumption that everybody knows what you're understanding of what this is doing as it goes in. So you're right, it'd be great to have those visual items on the desk and say here's what happens when you put straight sugar in boom and here's what happens when you put a long chain in yep. because to break up the long chain of those molecules also takes energy so you're using energy to break down that food it's work whereas yep. the glucose is just bam and yep. i've got to say i didn't mind those glucogels from the chemist when we were kids <laughs> Oh, really? I've oh, never yeah. had one. I, uh, oh, yeah, yeah I used to I, love them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fascinating that glucose, 
there's an experiment that you do in grade 11 biology, and I think it's still being done in high schools to this day. I can remember doing it, but learning absolutely nothing, where they get you to chew up a cracker, like a wafer biscuit, and then sit there with it in your mouth for about a minute. And while you're sitting there, there's an enzyme in saliva called amylase, yeah. which starts the process. Like it, it instantly starts chopping down these little bonds between the glucose molecules. And supposedly, I didn't get the effect, supposedly after about a minute in this experiment, you're supposed to notice that it gets sweeter oh. because a big long amylose or amylopectin molecule, which is both forms of starch, they're not sweet. Even though they're mm. made of glucose, they're not sweet because they don't hit the sweet receptors on your tongue. But as you chop them down, they start to excite the sweet receptors on your tongue. All I can remember is feeling slightly sick because I was mm. sitting there going, I want to spit this out. This is gross. <laughs> and so not my teacher's fault at the time. No, but the way it's presented is really important, I think, as well. And just that understanding of when you put this in, even protein, we took a lot about protein and what happens within it's like protein is long chains as well of amino acids that then cleaved and broken down and they have so many jobs in the body that a body that is lacking protein is lacking neurotransmitters for the brain and in muscle tissue and so many different cascade of different effects and hormones are made from protein so i think if we understand what's at the seat of everything we're doing i feel that weight management and the idea of eating well and eating a balanced diet would become a bit more natural and understood. Yeah. In fact, now I give these talks to kids about what's food made of all the time. And now that I've got my 3D animations, it took me years to figure out how to become a 3D animator because this stuff doesn't exist. So someone's got to do it. And until you start playing with it, you don't know what it's going to look like either. So it's taken me like quite literally three and a half years since I first started learning this software and it's starting to look really good and kids absolutely love it. So now I can go in and do things like I can show them how plants photosynthesize and make carbohydrates. That's great. Then we can talk about the fact that fat is just those same atoms but rearranged mm. to get rid of the oxygen and it's just mostly now carbon and hydrogen. And then we can get onto protein. And once you understand that protein, and in fact, we should probably mention because look, all of the food that we eat is just made of carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. So yeah. carbs, fat and alcohol, which is another oh, one. H. Yeah. And with alcohol, I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a heck of a lot of carbon atoms that you're putting in there when you're having a glass of wine. Mm. And it takes for one standard drink worth of alcohol, which is 10 grams of ethanol, it takes about an hour to breathe that out if you're my size at rest. And then the added complication with alcohol is that it gets broken down to well, it will become formaldehyde, I believe. Is that Yeah, an the, acid the, aldehyde and then down yeah. the track it does become formaldehyde. When yeah, when you and that's highly toxic, hence it's yeah. bad to overconsume it. And your liver can only do that one standard drink per hour, hence we get smashed if we drink ten standard drinks in an hour. That's a good thing to know that oh, okay, my liver can't just break yeah. that down. The other interesting thing with alcohol is the body goes, oh, alcohol, it's a toxin and it's heavy in carbon. So it's heavy in calories and energy generally. But the body will choose to run on the alcohol for as long as it takes. And it basically will hold off on burning the food and the fat and the other stuff, the nice cheese and the biscuits and whatever else you ate with the alcohol. So until you actually use that alcohol as energy, you can forget about using your dinner for running right. the body. Right, um, and then right. if you go to bed straight after that, you're just in storage mode basically until you get rid of the alcohol and then alcohol makes you hungry. So it's a cascade yes. again of yeah. all these different things taking place and yeah, slowing down our goals basically. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't help. I mean, I love a beer, so I've got mm. nothing against having a glass of alcohol or two or three. No. But then I do lots of physical activity as well and balance it all. But, balance um, is what I was going to say. But with yeah. protein, it's good to just close the loop here on what happens to all the atoms you eat. So pretty much everything you eat turns into carbon dioxide and water, except for with protein, there's two other kinds of atoms in there. There's nitrogen atoms and sulfur atoms as well as the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Yeah. And all of the nitrogen, essentially, nearly all of it becomes urea, which mm. you will pee out. And then there's literally probably a couple of thousand of other nitrogen containing molecules like creatinine. and But they're there in lower 
concentrations in your urine, but all of the nitrogen comes out as urine. So it comes out of your bladder. And same with the sulfur, which comes out as sulfates. So a little bit will come out undigested. So a bit escapes your bowels. And so there will be a little bit of that stuff in your stool. But it's so interesting that most of what you eat, by the time it's reached about a metre down your small intestine from where your stomach is, they call it a metre and a half, nearly all of what you ate is in your bloodstream. And then the only way out is through your lungs and a bit through your bladder. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, I wish I could rewind and go back and now do a medical degree because I wish I'd studied harder in high school so I got the marks to get into medicine and... However, when I talk yeah. to doctors about this stuff, they don't get much biochemistry. So they're just as keen to learn more of this metabolic pathway stuff as I the rest agree of with us. that. And I think, like we were just saying, you have to specialise to learn about how your body works and what food is. And then you go to the doctor who's saying, I don't know, eat less and move more and see how that goes. And in our situation where we deal with obesity, which is chronic disease and a kind of a misfiring of a whole lot of hormones and different biochemical reactions that are just not taking place well, eating less and moving more isn't always the key. It's looking at the chemical reactions that need to take place to free up these locked away fat cells. It's pretty fascinating. I think we all got to understood what your teaching at that younger level like we would start our lives with a better understanding of what we're doing and how to look after ourselves for sure yeah i think prevention here might be better Mm. than the cure and i mean i'm fascinated by obesity because it's obvious that there's more going on with than just telling people to eat less and move more i mean it is the thing that ultimately works but just saying those words it's almost a bit insulting i guess because you haven't given these people any background information and the only things i know i'm so not an expert in what causes obesity and what the cure is Um, But the only things that I do know, when I give a lecture at Uni of New South Wales as a guest lecturer once a year about weight loss, and the only bit that I talk about in my weight loss lecture that touches on the obesity epidemic and what people need to do is I just remind the students that, look, there's 26 hormones and peptides that we know of that that cause your appetite or suppress your appetite and so the ones that suppress it are things like serotonin and oxytocin there's a whole bunch of them and then there's other ones that make you feel hungry and so Mm. famous ones are the cannabinoids which when people smoke marijuana they get the famous munchies yeah when you drink alcohol you end up being hungry and so what your appetite is doing whether or not you feel hungry right now or not or satiated or not, it's a bit like a waterbed. There's 26 things pushing and pulling on it. And so you push here, like it could come up there. No one knows. No one can predict what's going to happen for you. But what's really interesting to me is that there's this extra layer on top of all of that, which is, well, I guess it's not really on top of. It's the driving force is also psychology because I know that it's happened to me where I felt hungry and thought, geez, I could eat a horse. Mm. But then something really big happens and you get distracted and suddenly you forget that you're hungry. And my go-to example is if you were sitting there feeling really hungry and just about to go to the fridge and whip something together and Mm. the phone rings and one of your siblings or a parent has been in a car crash and you've got to rush to the hospital because they're in emergency, you're going to quickly have that sandwich. You completely forget that you are hungry. Just your hunger's gone. A lot of it's like, and we talk about it from the OSA, obesity is 100 different things all cascading together and surgery is one. And then 99 other things we need to work out is from an endocrine perspective, from a behavioural perspective, from a self-love perspective. There's so many different, and this is why we love doing the podcast, is because we have all of these different experts like yourself from all different areas talking about the chemistry of it, but the psychology of it and that sort of thing. And that's why it's so fascinating because you could look at it in a different way every day of the week and come up with something different. Yeah, well, absolutely. And the psychology component, I've spoken to a few psychologists over the last sort of eight years since I've stumbled onto this and had a look at the literature on what people know about how much they understand about food and diets, etc., And what's really interesting, and it's no one's fault again, but when you Google or go to Google Scholar or if you go to PubMed and you do a literature search for the words obesity and carbon dioxide or weight Mm -hmm. loss and carbon dioxide, nothing, never mentioned. A review was done in 2016 on what do children know about eating and it reviewed all the literature up to that point 
on this question and the words carbon dioxide did not occur in that review paper. So even the researchers have not been taught this stuff, which makes me go, right, so if even the people doing the research don't know the right question to ask, how are we ever going to find the answer? Correct, yeah. And again, it sounds critical of those people, but it's not. It's just happened. So hopefully five to ten years from now in little old Bundaberg, which is I'm hoping to make Bundaberg the first town in the world where kids grow up with this knowledge. And then it's not a panacea. I still think some people will end up eating more than they it might not be that big a deal. Like some people might feel completely comfortable being the way that is. And that's totally fine as well. The people I feel bad for are the people who are struggling. They want to lose weight. They struggle with it their whole life. They go on this diet, that diet. They read every single book mm. and no one ever explains this one little key fact to them, which might, might just be the key. Absolutely. And I wanted to touch before we go, I'm aware of your time, so I'll wrap it up very shortly. One other question I had was about sleep and how much. So someone comes to me and they're wanting to sort their lives out a bit and be a bit more energetic and that sort of thing and they're carrying a bit more weight, I always look at their sleep first. Is Are you sleeping? How do you sleep? Is it broken sleep? Is that a state that we're in that is actually quite good for this fat burning kind of effect? This is one of my favourite little facts about weight loss is that I've done the maths for my own activity levels and what I do during a day. So if I have a fairly sedentary kind of a day, then 25% of the carbon atoms I'm going to exhale in 25, in 24 hours in one day, in a full 24 hours from midnight to midnight, about a quarter of the carbon comes out of my lungs while I'm perfectly asleep because you keep breathing. So it's just that your resting metabolic rate then, when you're asleep, you are burning through your fuel and oxygen at your resting metabolic rate. So it's very similar to just leaving your car idling in the shed. And I did the maths for that in my book as well, that if you left your car idling, so you never turn it off, which is what your body is never, ever switched off. It's always left on, whereas your car, you can turn off and back on again. And your car goes all the way to cold and then has to get all the way back to hot. Our body always stays 37. The minute it goes too late, you're dead. So if you did that with your car, I can't remember the numbers now, but it's an amazingly huge amount of petrol that you will burn just by leaving your car just running. By all idling. Day. Yeah. So we burn a lot at our resting metabolic rate. And in fact, only about 30% of the carbon that we breathe out is breathed out because we did physical activity. Correct. So another, yeah. So you're resting. And that's kind of where I go with incidental active life is actually more fruitful than large bouts of exercise. Like people are saying, oh, I've got to get to the gym because I want to lose weight. Mm. That's not necessarily where it's at is this one bout of exercise. It's making sure you've got some kind of activity going on throughout the day. We're covering it this month. Group, we've got an exercise physiologist on talking about that as well is how do we become more active, not more exercise-y. Do you know what I mean? It's not like we need to get up and and it does, there is a benefit. I'm not saying there's no benefit in going to the gym and keeping fit. There's certainly benefit in that. But when you look at that compared to an active lifestyle where you walk to the bus stop, get off a bus stop early, climb the stairs, and that's incidental activity, that's where it's at is Mm -hmm. this basal metabolic rate is you're burning more at the lights if you're sitting there or you've got a bigger engine in your car, you're burning more energy. So the more active you are and the more muscle you have, you need more energy to sustain it. So it's all about that, really. 100%, yeah. So the muscle tissue is much more metabolically active. Like the way I have talked about this, I wrote a book about all this stuff ages ago. It wasn't a bestseller because it just ends up telling you that to lose weight, you've got to eat a bit less and move a bit more. But there is that (laughs) fact that if you take Arnold Schwarzenegger and you take someone the same height, but who's also 110 kilos, but most of their extra weight is fat tissue as opposed to muscle tissue, then you stick a mask on him and measure how much oxygen he's consuming and CO2 he's producing at rest while he's asleep. It's more than the person who's got more fat tissue because muscle is so much more metabolically active. So yeah, that's a really good thing to know as well. Having a bigger liver and a bigger brain. And when you're talking to the exercise physiologist, they probably will tell you about this, but there is this wonderful database maintained by the University of Arizona called the Compendium of Physical Activities. It is a database of just about every kind of physical activity that you can think of, including 
things that you wouldn't call physical activity, like singing in a church choir is one of the things, or there's all these categories. I think there's 19 categories. There's one for walking, there's one for running, there's one for swimming and so forth. And there's work ones, there's housework ones. You can look up any activity, like for instance, vacuuming your house. It tells you, compared to sitting still, how much more breathing are you doing? What's your Mm. metabolic rate, essentially? But that just tells you how much more air you're breathing. Uh, Elevates it. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of this idea of saying, well, look, okay, if you want to go to the gym, that's great. And I'm not trying to put gyms out of business. Mm. But at the same time, if you, instead of going to the gym and just chucking weights around for an hour, rip out your vacuum cleaner, rip out your bucket and mop, get the mower out or help your neighbour move boxes. There's all these yeah. things you can do that equivalent in how much they raise your metabolic rate to Absolutely. going to the gyms. And you're doing stuff, you're getting things done. So, And there's that also that feeling of I did something. And I think that's where we're getting to is everything's automated or outsourced. So we have the cleaner come in to clean the house and off we go to the gym. Is it making sense? <laughs> So I'll, I'll bring you back before we go to my mate Frank in Bundaberg, oh, who yeah. mum and dad's lawn. He said this wonderful thing to me. He said all these people see him pushing his lawnmower around and say, hey, Frank, why don't you get a ride-on yeah. mower? And he used to be a full-on athlete and he still remembers that training is really good. So he's ripped. He's absolutely fit as a fiddle. And he says to these people, are you mad? Like, why would I sit on a ride-on? I'm getting paid to exercise. And I'm like, Frank, I could kiss you. You're, that's it's so true. And I think we're taking up weight. And we call it obesogenic society is because we're taking away all these opportunities to move more. And we work harder. And they say, well, don't, you should outsource your cleaning because you make more money if you're working. So go work more and have someone else clean your house for you because it's not financially. But you look at how easy it is to remove all the movement out of your life if you you can afford it, firstly. But it's a real way of thinking now. It's like you could go and do all these fun things. Go to a restaurant and drink a glass of wine and have dinner. If you've outsourced everything else to the people who actually now do your moving for you as well. I think we need to be aware of that because that's where it is that sort of incidental at the end of the day. I mean, we sit in jobs now, a lot of them are seated. It's the new smoking, they say. And there's good reason for it. Yeah, absolutely. Look, knowledge is power, I think. And we're just not giving people the knowledge they need. And they're all confused about why their bodies aren't the way they want their bodies to look. And it's just this bizarre spiral that's not going to go anywhere until we teach kids and people. Yeah, start from the bottom up. Then they've done a bit, but I think what you've got here is a real key to the visual and the understanding of it. So thank you. Oh, pleasure. Um, How do we find you if you want to learn more about this breathing out fat stuff? I've got a website that will slowly become better and better because I've literally spent the last four years doing this 3D animation stuff and I'm just about ready to chuck it on YouTube and chuck it on my website. So rubenmearman.com is my website and same Ruben Mearman is my name on YouTube. And if you keep an eye on that for the next six months, you'll start to see things appearing with explanations of what I'm banging on about here. We'll start presenting that in the group too because I think it's key. It's really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, that's great. And we've also, I'll clip in on the show notes. So if you're looking for our show notes for the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast.com, where we house all the ways to contact all of our guests and the videos that they're offering and any downloads and that sort of thing. So thank you once again, Ruben. It's been a fantastic journey into breathing more and losing fat, right? (laughs) Yeah. Breathe more, have fun, keep breathing is what I always say at the end. Yeah, just breathe. Eat eat less, move more, keep breathing. That's that's how I stitch it up. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.